American workers can retain their jobs, receive their paychecks, and help our economy take off quickly once America reopens. Thirty billion dollar job keeper legislation. Hi everyone, welcome to the State of Business podcast with friends around the world. This podcast brings together uh, industry leaders, policymakers, academics, startups, and scale-ups to discuss the trends and the technology influencing business today. I'm your host, Adam Wood. I'm the second generation CEO of a family business called GCS Credit, a network of international debt collectors with a footprint in about 100 countries. I'm also the founder of Certified Buy, a, a, a disruptive reg tech for SME startup uh, that allows businesses to uh, assess, report, remediate and certify themselves against international best practice standards to mitigate risk and to power growth. And I led the creation of the ICCA or the International Credit and Collection Alliance, an initiative that brings together the leading industry associations around the world in credit and collection uh, to come together to, to help build or drive standards for our industry, uh, starting with privacy and data protection. My co-host, Don Maurice, is I'm sure known to many of you. He is the partner of national financial services law firm, Maurice Woodcher. He is the outside legal counsel to RMAI, or the Receivables Management Association International in the US. Uh, and he has just too many other accolades for me to do proper justice here. Uh, suffice to say, he is an industry legend and I'm honored to have him join me as a co-host for this four part series. Like so many industries, debt collectors are doing it tough right now. In some parts of the world, regulators are banning collections. In other parts of the world, it's business as usual. So we need to ask ourselves, what does fair debt collection look like in a state of emergency? Can existing hardship provisions facilitate a recovery? How are the evolving regulatory moves impacting our industry? And what are our industry leaders saying in these unprecedented times? So for this, our first episode, USA and Australia, we brought out the big guns to share their views on the response and the recovery phase of COVID-19. First up, Roger Weiss. He is the president of CACI, a full services national debt collection firm based out of Missouri. He is the extraordinary and comedic uh, collections coach. Uh, and he's also just happens to be the sitting president of ACA International. We're very lucky also to have Paul Cooney is the current chairman of CollectAU, a national collection agency here in Australia. He was the founding president of the ACDBA, the Australian Collectors and Debt Buyers Association. And at once upon a time, he sat on the board and in the international unit of ACA International. So he understands the international market and the US one uh, particularly. And so without further ado, let's get cracking. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me for this first episode of the first series, The State of Debt Collection, on the State of Business podcast. As we transition from the response to the recovery phase of COVID-19, we're here to talk about the current state of debt collection in the USA and Australia. With regards to the impact of COVID-19 on debt collectors, Don, what are the main issues that you're hearing from RMAI members? Well, the main, the main issues that uh, we're facing here in uh, the states is uh, a, a bevy of emergency regulations that are being imposed uh, by states and locales uh, directed at uh, restricting the ability to collect debt. So uh, we may see, for example, one state uh, would restrict uh, the uh, ability to access the courts. Uh, uh, most states have been doing that in the context of saying that you cannot bring non-emergent actions. 
those apply to all litigants. But then we have other states, uh, for example, most notably Massachusetts, which restricted access to court just for debt collection cases and just for debt collectors. Um, those, those pose more difficult problems because, as you know, uh, some of these matters are extremely time-sensitive and creditors can lose rights unless they're protected. Um, we also see restrictions on uh, uh, the types of communications. Uh, some communicate, communications are prohibited, like phone calls in certain places. Others are outright bans on the totality of communications, no matter if it was a letter or a phone call. Uh, those are causing disruption. They disrupt operations, uh, but also they make it very difficult to operate because the operations are tied to a company's compliance uh, system. And when you take out one method of communication that is a necessary part of that, um, it, it creates risk. And that's something that our members are entirely um, focused on is risk. Um, the laws here in the states are significant and severe. Uh, as they apply to debt collectors. And the greater the risk in, in making a simple communication, um, the more potential there is uh, to run afoul of either a regulator or a, a private uh, lawsuit by a, uh, a, 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 either a class or individual. So those are the biggest issues that we're facing here. Okay, thanks, Dawn. And, and Roger, how does that align or differ with what you're seeing at ACA? Sure. So, Adam, and for our viewers out there that might not be familiar with uh, ACA International, uh, we're a member-driven organization, about 3,500 uh, people comprised of professional debt collectors, uh, attorneys, uh, creditors, some international members. So, there, there's a litany of different interests that are represented, and, and I would first say that Don did an outstanding job explaining kind of the torrid landscape that we're facing here in the states and it's just so uh, diverse and and changing so rapidly uh, things are in place one morning that afternoon might be 180 degrees different so it, it's uh, it's really difficult to keep up on however I will also say that I think uh, one of the impacts that we're seeing on debt collectors, is a better communication between creditor clients and professional debt collectors, uh, shared concerns uh, about risk, uh, the future, uh, what can we do now, what can we do later, and how can we come together to work with consumers that are impacted uh, both health-wise and financially by uh, the COVID crisis. So I, I think that we're building some, some very strong alliances uh, not only among uh, units and groups and uh, associations, uh, but from the creditor to agency level and even the agency uh, to consumer level and creditor to consumer le level. It's really forcing everyone to, to think about uh, better ways to do nearly everything and how to work together towards positive yeah, excuse me, positive resolutions. Uh, in fact, uh, regulators are even seeing professional debt collectors in many instances uh, as part of the solution of uh, uh, opening communication with consumers and keeping that there. And I will tell you, the outpouring of consumer compliment calls that, that we're uh, getting in the industry cannot be understated. 
they're so glad that we're there to answer the phone and help them. So I, I think that it's a myriad of actions and reactions and impacts and effects across the industry. Thanks, Mike. Well said. Um, and Paul, I guess moving and looking closer to, to, to our part of the world, with a big shout out, I believe, to Alan Harries from uh, ACDBA and IMA. Um, what do you see happening here in Australia, mate? What are collectors over here, uh, what concerns are they voicing? Thanks, Adam. And yes, uh, just to clarify, ACDBA is the Australian Collectors and Debt Buyers Association, a representative body uh, looking after the interests of those businesses that, are, that fall under that, the umbrella of that description, both in terms of lobbying government and sharing best practice uh, amongst members. Um, I uh, have the, the privilege of being the foundation uh, president of that association and uh, speak today as a member uh, of the association, not for the association. But as Adam says, Alan Harry's the, uh, the executive of that association has provided me with an update just to provide some colour. And whilst our situation in many, our situation from a health uh, perspective mirrors the rest of the world, although we've been more successful in avoiding the high levels of, uh, of death from the pandemic, um, the business impacts have been similar. Our regulators have not been as specific as uh, our uh, US friends regulators have in that the courts are still available. Uh, the, the processes that we normally have uh, are, are able to access are still there. However, it's the clients that have reacted significantly and immediately in suspending collection action. Uh, the, the, the business community has generally said stop don't pursue people at this time until we have a better idea of what the landscape looks like. Okay. Uh, we had some discussions yesterday uh, about the energy sector and that's, that sector specifically has put a moratorium on uh, placements of accounts for collection and uh, credit default listings until the 31st of July. Uh, the banks, uh, and we'll talk more about them as the uh, this presentation goes on but they've introduced a range of concessions and suspended actions uh, so from a from a, a business flow standpoint uh, debt collectors have been told to to stop action or or amend the processes to be much more uh, cooperative uh, in dealing with customers and to, and to find solutions um, that, that work for everybody. And at this stage, uh, we're, we're all trying to find out what those solutions look like. Uh, obviously, the debt collectors themselves have faced problems of working from home, uh, technologies uh, being put under some pressure, um, the employment challenges of debt collectors, maintaining staff uh, is an issue. Um, and, uh, and, and compliance regimes have been able to very quickly adjust to the changed environment because they were well-developed uh, both, uh, both by those companies individually but in working with the regulators over the past few years, uh, those compliance regimes have provided a framework to enable us to react quickly to a situation like this 
even though we couldn't have foreseen it. Yeah, and I wonder how, how much that, those compliance or visible compliance systems played a part or will play a part in, in, in the, the revival, I guess, of this industry. Um, you know, what we've seen re very recently in Massachusetts is perhaps an example, and I'm sure, you know, visible, transparent compliance systems um, would have played a part in, in uh, the industry argument. Uh, thanks, Paul. Roger, through the lens of regulators and, 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 and consumer groups, um, in the US, what are the prevailing views to your understanding of consumer groups and what impact are you seeing this have and perhaps foresee this having on the industry? Well, uh, as, as a lot of people know, uh, professional debt collectors are not consumer groups' favorite group of people by any means. Uh, so there's been a lot of bad press and bad publicity out there. And I, I think that it is uh, so misplaced. Um, uh, the, the collectors that I work with, the professional agencies I work with uh, that are in the uh, professional associations over here, and by and large, uh, I would say 99% of the industries, both credit grantors and agencies, are working to help consumers uh, with, with uh, modified payment arrangements, with offsets of payment plans, uh, with some pretty aggressive uh, tools that the consumer groups do their very best to make sure are not recognized nor given credit in the media. Uh, consumer groups also have a, a very loud voice with regulators and they are making certain that they are heard so we're, we're trying to put forward as much of a proactive, concerted effort as we can to make sure those regulators are, are fairly uh, informed of the steps that we are taking uh, to make sure uh, that consumers are being uh, considered and, uh, and thoughtful measures are being taken to make sure that they're not being taken advantage of. Um, so. Uh, that said, to answer your question directly, it's, it's just, uh, uh, it's more of the same, just very concentrated right now from consumer groups is how I would describe it. Uh, and regulators are all over the map uh, as far as their views and their input uh, from very positive to not so positive. Yeah. Don, moving perhaps to one of your strengths around ethics, and I've heard you present on this issue at, at two conferences running now. Um, I don't think it's perhaps ever been more relevant right now in our industry, particularly looking through the lens of um, ethics in a state of crisis or a state of emergency. Do you get any broad views on, on, on what impact this is going to have on the industry as well, um, and, and how clearly diverging views on, on how we proceed um, during these times between Australia and the US? If you look at what Paul's just mentioned, you know, we're, we're business as usual, fundamentally, um, very different story in the US. Can you share your views on what you think of the ethics um, conversation in COVID-19? Yeah, and in fact, um, ethics and an RMAI certification program, ethics is a core course. Uh, every year, we have it uh, twice a year, uh, we do a live two-hour presentation and it's required for certification. Certified companies um, are, um, are uh, very, very much aware of uh, the tools that ethics 
supplies them with uh, to deal with situations just as we have here. And probably one of the best things that we talk about in the ethics course that we have is uh, that there is a perceived ethical culture, and it may be different from what uh, the uh, you uh, may perceive an ethical practice to be, uh, for example, as opposed to a consumer group or a consumer advocate. As, as Roger pointed out, uh, the consumer advocates have uh, the ear of the press and legislators and regulators, and they see things quite differently through a different lens, we'll say. Um, we're all looking at the same conduct, but we see it differently. And we talk about that a lot, and we talk about that what, what our members should be doing is uh, realizing that different, different members of, of society have a different view of their behavior. Uh, and you need to focus on the perceptions of the population to whom you are directing um, your message, whether that message be uh, about my company and who my company is or the conduct of the company, in particular here in COVID-19, the debt collection practices. Um, one of the things that you should consider is whether the target population would understand the conduct to be an ethically strong behavior under the present circumstances. So um, uh, think about it in the context of this. If I was to file a lawsuit and obtain a wage garnishment in February 15 of 2020 in New York State, no one would see that as a problem. Uh, it's entirely lawful. There's a defaulted debt. A, a court has entered an order enforcing a contract. Now go ahead to April 15, 2020. The perception is very different. It's the same conduct but the circumstances around it have changed. And if you're directing that conduct at a group of persons, we'll say in New York City, um, who uh, are locked down, they can't leave their home, they can't work, many of them, their industries, entire industries have been shuttered, thinking mostly about uh, food and beverage and tourism, which is a huge part of the New York City economy. They have no income or they're on public assistance at this point. That same conduct that two months earlier was entirely permissible and no one would, would raise an eyebrow at now is seen differently. So what we do, what we, what we talk to our members about is recognizing this and always being attuned to these types of changes. COVID is an extraordinary one because usually when we deal with it, it's, it's, it's um, a disaster maybe in, as a result of a flood or a tornado or a hurricane or some other uh, natural or man-made disaster, but that, that disaster, that, that, that stressful condition is limited to a very small geographic area and doesn't have the extent of, of, of an economic uh, hardship that we're seeing here. So this was a test for us. What we did um, was we, need, we always need to think about, again, what is, what is the perception of the organization? and its members. So we reached out very early. In fact, in mid-March, we began, uh, mid-March 2020, we began having telephone conversations with consumer groups about what they wanted to see. What, what, they would do, what do they want to see as far as the debt collector conduct in this circumstance? And we got a lot of input from them, in fact. Uh, we took that input, talked to our members and our leadership, and we put together uh, very early on I just want to look at my notes on this because I want to get the dates right here. 
Um, we issued uh, our first uh, guidance on March 17, 2020. About the same time, we reached out to the governors of all 50 states, and we told them, here's the guidance that we have for our members. And by the way, we're here to assist you. We know that times are tough, very tough, and difficult for you as a governor, and that you're going to be hit with a lot of different requests. Uh, we are a resource in receivables management financial services and we can we can assist you in developing those uh, at the same time we also reached out to um, uh, if not all of the attorneys general most of the attorneys general in the u.s as well as federal agencies and sent the same message to them so that was very early on um, we have since been engaging with regulators regularly uh, and consumer groups we continue to engage with consumer groups to see how their view of certain conduct has maybe changed. Now, we, we, we alluded earlier to uh, the, what happened in Massachusetts. Um, one of the things I will point out in Massachusetts, and perhaps uh, for the wider audience uh, that's outside the US, uh, probably the two most affected states here are New York and New Jersey. And uh, e either of those states have far, far more COVID-19 cases and far greater restrictions um, affecting our economy than Massachusetts does. Neither state has uh, banned debt collection uh, or imposed restrictions that would be seen as unreasonable. Uh, and in fact, we have had conversations with both the New York Attorney General and the uh, Department of Financial Services throughout uh, this crisis, letting them know what we're doing, keeping them advised. This is what we're telling our members to do the type of conduct uh, that you should be aware of and aware of the persons that you're communicating to. That has worked very well. Massachusetts, they simply enacted a, a, an emergency regulation through the attorney general's office without talking to anyone. No, no discussion at all, they, as if they didn't care what we were doing and were going to tell us how they viewed the world. Um, I think in the end that probably uh, weighed very much against uh, uh, their arguments uh, that the ACA prevailed on. But uh, for those who uh, may be dealing with uh, this uh, uh, outside of the U.S. in a new regulatory environment, I would say these are good points to, to consider is how people view your conduct under these circumstances. And the best way to learn that certainly is from the media. Uh, but also talk to the regulator, talk to the consumer groups, and see what they say. And you know what I found out, Adam? I found out that they were more reasonable than you would imagine when you were able to sit down and talk with them. They understand that um, the receivables management industry is uh, very important to the economy. Uh, it, is, it, it employs a vast number of persons in the U.S., consumer Consumer credit is, is, is enormous in the U.S. It's, it's, it drives our economy. And for it to continue to do so, uh, the, the collection end needs to function properly. And so I think there's a recognition of that. Um, but again, at the same time, it's important that we temper our practices, our everyday practices that we're used to conducting um, in January or February this year. Uh, the world has changed, and, and, and with it, so, so must those practices. I, uh, I'd love to drill down further into that for the sake of, of keeping this at a high level. Um, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that again in another episode. Sure. I think there's so much we sure. can drill into there. Paul, what, what comes from that? I wanted to ask you about 
the regulatory moves in Australia. But I think we've already, we're, we're now aware that it's business as usual to some degree. Um, could you share your views on consumer groups and regulatory moves and, and, and as the Australian market compared to the US? I know consumer groups have a very loud voice in the US. By comparison, do they hear in Australia and are they as receptive to speaking with uh, our part of the industry um, as Don has suggested they are in the US? Don, that was very, really interesting and uh, thank you for that, those insights. Um, whilst uh, there is some business as usual elements to what we're doing, clearly the environment has changed in a way that we've never seen before and, uh, and the, the restrictions on activities uh, are based on the sensitivities of the market rather than the regulations surrounding it. Uh, the consumer groups uh, and the debt collection industry have, have knocked heads uh, against one another forever. Um, and they, they do seem to come at these issues from a very different perspective. Um, we do engage with, uh, with the, these groups on a regular basis and to a significant degree have a working relationship. But the fundamental approaches are different. And there isn't the widespread acceptance and acknowledgement that the debt collection or receivables management industries are as essential to the operation of the Australian economy as sounds like is the case in the US. Uh, we all know the importance of recovering funds and why the debt collection industry exists and the sort of things we, uh, services we provide, but, but it is an adversarial relationship with most of the consumer groups a lot of the time. That said, recent years have seen, uh, seen the consumer groups join with the ACDBA and, and nut out approaches uh, to thorny issues, conflict issues, and those relationships are continuing to, to grow and improve. I think the, the hardship provisions which exist across uh, the Australian codes of conduct are an example of the industries getting, or the industry and the consumer groups getting together and developing a framework of responses to hardship and hardship in all of its forms, whether it be hardship as a consequence of the bushfire disasters we had in this country earlier this year, whether it be uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and the unemployment that flows from that uh, the industry shutdowns and, and economic pressures generally, uh, the, the responses are, are well covered by the hardship provisions. Yeah. And that's demonstrated, I think, by the reactions of the major credit providers at the moment in suspending so much of the collection and uh, credit activity, uh, rather than relying on the regulators enforcing that suspension. Um, the Financial Counselors Association, for example, has recently developed a, a, an easier communication protocol for, for consumers to interpose a financial counsellor on their behalf. Previously a complicated and long-winded process, uh, it, it's now been simplified. The industry has accepted the, the revised form to enable uh, consumers to get external support, um, the sort of support that could, of course, be provided by the receivables management sector if there was an acceptance that we had the, the same end goal. Um, but while that isn't the case, consumers uh, tend to uh, 
to go to financial counsellors, seek their engagement and have the financial counsellors acting on their behalf. But that cooperative arrangement, that, that acceptance of that uh, regime uh, has, has meant that regulation to control the activities of the collection industry hasn't been required. As this economic crisis unfolds and the need for uh, utility and essential service guarantees seems more obvious by the day, Roger, in the US, are utilities considered essential services and are there any guarantees for US citizens uh, and protections in a state of emergency? So headline reads, electric company shuts off power, couple affected by COVID couldn't pay their bill. So they freeze to death. No one is going to allow that to happen. So first of all, there are utility companies over here that are uh, either government run or owned. Certainly they're not gonna be interrupted. I don't know anyone that's shutting off any services right now, paid or not paid. Uh, that goes, I, I believe that uh, most people are applying a good common sense rule saying what what is essential well basic utilities including things like uh, trash pickup trash disposal even internet and telephony service is certainly critical uh, from just uh, uh, news media and and staying connected and communicated and, and communicated with right mm -hmm. so uh, i i don't think that there is anyone i haven't heard of anyone and don correct me if i'm wrong but i don't think anyone is shutting off anything uh, there are certainly not any evictions going on right now. As Don stated earlier, uh, most courts are only uh, essential, so all non-essential stuff is tabled right now. And, and again, I don't, I don't think you're going to see uh, anyone want to be seen as a, as a miser or a scrooge during this period to take advantage of consumers who have either had their employment displaced or uh, have been affected health-wise. I think that there are going to be some consumers uh, who are going to take advantage of that situation, but in the end, uh, you know, there, there's going to, these are unique and special circumstances that none of us have seen before. So in the end, uh, during the repair period, there will be a, a whole lot of, um, uh, I say accountability, but the accountability may be explanation and forgiveness. I think you're going to see a whole lot more government assistance uh, coming out financially to consumers and availability thereof. They might have to prove some things on the back end uh, that they were displaced or that they were their income was interrupted uh, and they were unable to meet those obligations. Uh, but again, um, I, I don't think any utilities or essential services are being interrupted. And quite frankly, to the small business owners that might be listening out there, I would tell you this, uh, your consumers need you now more than ever, whether you're essential or non-essential, take care of them now. So in the good times, they'll take care of you. So well said, well said. Um, Paul, before we move on to the next topic, um, anything to add here in Australia in terms of um, you know, essential services utilities? Uh, would you concur with what Roger said? Uh, absolute parallels in terms of the risks of some consumers taking advantage of the situation. The government in Australia has responded with enormous financial support for people impacted by COVID. Uh, and, uh, and 
and in terms of evictions, um, there is a uh, prohibition on um, evictions for six months. Um, so even if you don't, if you're unable to pay your rent, you're not going to be thrown out of your home. Uh, however, that doesn't mean that consumers can sit back and not pay the rent, even though their circumstances might not have changed. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's a circumstance that we need to be aware of. We need to talk to people about the fact that um, these bills are not going away. They are going to have to be paid. Mm. They're just being set aside for a short period of time yeah. uh, until things get back to normal, whatever normal looks like. Yeah, look, I do, however, uh, again, make the comment about the energy or the utility sector generally that, uh, that there is no uh, wholesale uh, re reductions in supply. People uh, who are impacted at the moment will continue to have electricity, water, gas, um, but they need to communicate with those providers and make sure that everybody is aware of their circumstances. Mm -hmm. Be genuine with the providers. If you are continuing in employment, then they need to negotiate uh, and meet their obligations as they fall due. Because of the privatisation of our utilities across the country, um, these, are, these businesses are impacted by their own operating cost issues, uh, their own staff uh, constraints, and if their consumers are not meeting their obligations, there is a significant knock-on effect that is going to impact these businesses down downstream. Yeah. Very clearly what we've talked on leads to the, the, the conversation around deferrals and hardship provisions. And, and I guess the questions um, that I wonder is, are, this, are the existing provisions enough to, to satisfy the needs? Um, Paul, how do you see deferrals and hardships? Um, how do you see them stack up in these times, in these very unique times? And 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 will or can you foresee, particularly here, uh, additional measures, regulations, legislation to 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 foresee or to to assist consumers through this this pandemic? Yeah, crystal ball gazing on this one is a bit hard, mm. harder than uh, usual. Um, the deferrals of, for example, I mentioned utilities. There is no uh, default lodgements until the end of July. Banks have given six-month moratoriums on uh, on loan repayments. Um, there has generally been this idea that we're, we've got a problem, let's go soft for six months, uh, and because that's when the government's uh, current support scheme will expire. So, so uh, we're, we've bought ourselves this window of time. Uh, in September, when all of these things come crashing down, we're not going to be back to normal. So I don't see the current deferrals, uh, the current program of concessions uh, being able to be stopped uh, in September. There is going to have to be ongoing support, an ongoing regime of extending payment timetables. Uh, there will not be the capacity to revert uh, at the end of six months to full payment as if full employment has been reinstated and, sit, and the situation goes back to where we were in February. Um, now, whether or not companies are going to be able to support that continued concession without government support, we don't know. We can't, I can't see that happening. I can't see how governments at all levels uh, and businesses, uh, large and small, 
can continue to sustain themselves, employ people and run businesses if they're not getting paid. Um, it's all well and good writing uh, interest and adding interest to your loan book. But if it's not going to be recovered and you're simply writing income that's going to be written off, that's not a scenario that enables the financial security of, uh, of a companies anywhere around the world to, uh, to survive. So the business models are going to have to be supported by a change. A ch and what that change looks like is it will develop as we get more and more information about how we're going to come out of this, uh, how, how long we're, companies are going to be able to wait until uh, their, their businesses come back to something like normal. Um, and this is, this is an evolving challenge. But um, I, do, I don't see the ability of us to get back to, back to business being achieved without some regulation and some continued support after the end of the, after the expiry of the current support measures. Don, did you bring your, your crystal ball, mate? How do, you, how do you see that comparing to the US? What's your thoughts on where this goes? Actually, I, I mean, I think uh, Paul had it right on the head. Uh, how do you, how do you function, how do your markets function uh, when um, you're restricting uh, normal economic activity? And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I don't know, for example, here in New Jersey, I don't know, in New York, I don't know how casinos function uh, when people can't go to the casino to, 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 to place a wager. How do restaurants function when people can't eat there? Uh, today, in fact, uh, uh, in New Jersey, Phil Murphy, our governor, extended uh, the, uh, the stay at home until June 6th. So that's now um, uh, April, May, it's three months. And it'll open up again, but this is a virus. It doesn't go away. So it opens up. Does that mean it spreads more now? Uh, today, uh, Governor uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo in New York uh, reported that in his daily briefing that uh, of the new cases, the new hospitalizations in New York, 66% of the persons being hospitalized in New York State uh, we're staying at home. So how is that virus getting to them if they if 66% now look, I, I could understand if a few people uh, were um, uh, violating stay at home running around in Central Park or, or uh, out on out on the beach in the Hamptons, maybe uh, and, and got too close, but 66% that's of the hospitalizations in New York is extraordinary. And I think that, that we'll see here that these restrictions are going to continue. So how do you function? Well, you can't. You can't. That's the point I was making before. Uh, the normal, typical ways that we do things uh, may not have a place uh, with the present conditions. Now, does that mean everyone in all of the areas of, of the U.S. have the same situation? Fortunately, no, not now. Um, uh, so possibly uh, uh, you can act differently, let's say, in Nebraska, where you have very few cases. I see in Australia, for example, uh, you've talked about some pretty great restrictions. But last I looked at it, there were 6,800 people infected. in the whole country that are infected. Yeah. I've got Bill, counties in New Jersey 
with, with a lot more than that. So you're taking it very seriously, very seriously, and you've closed down your national economy. We've not done the same here. So I don't know, Adam, what's going to happen. What, what I can say is this. The, 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 the government of the United States has thrown out a lot of money. They are printing money. Paul, your answer is how does the economy continue to function in this way? You have a government that can just print money is apparently how it works. And they're printing a lot, and they're just sending out a lot of money to everyone in the form of, of, of just grants. Um, individuals are getting grants, and businesses are getting substantial grants. Entire industries are getting billions of dollars. Um, how long can this last? I don't know. But it's keeping things going here. If you look at the U.S. stock market, it's just down slightly from, from its all-time highs that it reached in February of 2020. How is this possible? I don't know. So there has to be money flowing somewhere through some things. Now, what's different? Well, uh, uh, we have stimulus funds, and uh, one of the things that the RMAI said when we're talking about debt collection is, hands off the stimulus funds, right? These are designed for, to help people that are uh, in, in financial hardship. Is everyone who receives stimulus funds in financial hardship? No. Uh, but how do you determine who is and who isn't? Uh, and that's where you get, again, into risk. Um, so what do you have to do? Um, do, you, do, you, do you go out and garnish stimulus funds? No. As, Paul, as Roger pointed out, um, all you need to do is garnish a, a, the bank account of a person who has stimulus funds, who is suffering from this illness, or has a loved one at home suffering from this illness, and, and it is a public relations disaster for your company and for, frankly, the entire industry. So again, it's a matter of perception. Um, you have to tread lightly and very carefully, probably make a lot of extra effort in uh, understanding your customer, um, the debtor, uh, the person who you are communicating to, and their situation. So um, there are tools to do that. We could discuss that later. But I, I, I wish if I had, look, if I had a crystal ball and could tell you what's going to happen, I'd be either shorting or going long uh, on, certain, on certain equities. And, and I just can't tell you what is going to, I've never lived through a pandemic. And I don't know if there's any adult here today who could tell us what happened in 1916 or 1917, um, but um, they lived through it. The world lived through it. It was, it was not as connected world, but it did fine, and uh, it was a much more severe uh, virus, but uh, we are a, a more connected world, and we are a very mobile world, too. People interact, and this is contagious. It moves around a lot. I think the best thing to say is, is that you can continue to operate but just do it carefully. The usual typical tools um, have to be reevaluated uh, under the circumstances. So with all of that said, and with a view to, I guess, looking at client sentiment and what, what instructions are we receiving? What, what are clients actually saying to us now? Paul, you, you, you mentioned earlier that the Australian market you know, has, has recognized that we should pull back on, on, on moving forward with collections. Um, Roger, ACA to one side, as the president of CACI, a Missouri-based full-service collection firm, 
What are clients saying to you? Um, and how are you managing their expectations right now? Sure. So very early on, uh, we, we had, so my company works a lot of healthcare and a lot of utility debt. Uh, so we had some healthcare uh, entities reach out to us and, and halt placement. We had some others continue placement, but uh, asked us to halt uh, any um, new legals going forward, um, which that was real easy to do since the courts weren't open to file any new ones. So that kind of worked out pretty well, right? Uh, but I, what we've learned along the way is mutual communication, um, uh, sharing events and expectations and reactions to expectations, uh, sometimes missing on both the client's part and our part, and both of us kind of being on the phone or a Zoom meeting and saying, huh. So uh, again, it's kind of a brave new world uh, every day here. And uh, the, the biggest thing that we are communicating to clients and clients are asking of us is to be a resource. They're, they're understanding that we are not just, and this goes for broad spread, uh, ACA members, RMAI members, uh, a whole lot of people out there. We are not just a collection agency. We're a contact center. We're a, a customer service center. We are a, a, a payment IVR, or uh, we are an online portal to help consumers. We are a, uh, a chat online that consumers can go to. We are resources to consumers for creditors and for our clients in any regards. No one on this call and, and probably out in, in the viewer land can tell me that as we're coming into recovery from this, down the road at some point, because I really don't think we're close to coming into recovery on this now, there is going to be a ton of non-debt recovery related work that creditors are going to need the expertise of professional debt collectors and of contact centers and of communication management to assist with. So as we're uh, building those, those rapports with creditors and clients and prospects now, uh, it's, uh, it, it will uh, come to fruition uh, downstream, so to say, when everyone knows each other's expectations and capabilities because we've communicated thoroughly and frequently from the onset. And Don, how do you see um, debt buyers positioning right now? And, and what are their expectations of, you know, presume a debt buyer is buying debt who's then outsourcing to third parties? Um, similar sentiment? Well, yes, absolutely. And um, to the extent that I, I described what some of those principles are, um, they're conveying those same principles to their service providers, uh, whether it be a third-party collector or a collection law firm. Um, uh, they need to be mindful of uh, the condition of the consumer they're communicating with and the conditions around which that consumer um, is engaged either in business uh, or whether they're in a lockdown. So there's tools that uh, are out there that uh, allow people to uh, be able to make an assessment of that. So maybe some places like New York City is not the best place to be making act a very active and a uh, typical uh, collection strategy in. 
Um, and so perhaps uh, uh, the guidance there would be different. But that's, that's the point I made before, is that this is very, very unique um, and that it, it, it differs place to place. So um, there's more work going in on the compliance side, uh, which is extraordinary as it is. And frankly, uh, uh, the receivables management industry in the United States is all about compliance. Um, they invest an enormous amount of, of their company's resources in compliance. And that, that cost just went up dramatically. So while revenues may be down, uh, the cost of compliance is up, making it very difficult for some. I thought Roger's points, though, were very interesting. Um, you know, how do you deal with this now? How do you make sure your business has a place uh, that uh, it, can, it can operate? And he pointed out some very, I think, interesting ways of doing that. Planning for the future. There will be a huge inventory of accounts um, that need to be managed and that need the specialty that the receivables management associations uh, and, and the members have in, in handling these accounts. Creditors typically in the U.S. don't want to spend that money anymore. Um, they make money uh, lending. They don't make money collecting. So uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunities there uh, when we begin to come out of it. States are moving out of it. Uh, the stay-at-home order are being lifted in some places, and with it, uh, any restrictions or even a perceived restriction, right, because I talked about looking at it uh, from the context of how the person is um, living and, and, and either economically or through their business or lack of a business or stay at home. When those go away, uh, then, then the restrictions change and, and, and uh, the hardship uh, policies may be different in those circumstances. So um, I think that uh, as we work through this, uh, uh, be mindful of, uh, again, the local conditions and uh, you, your company can react um, to them, I think, accordingly. Paul, you, you touched on this a little earlier. Anything to add around client sentiment and, and instructions, the current state of affairs here? Roger made terrific points, and, and we're seeing uh, some of that play out already, that, uh, that clients are looking for more customer service support, more contact centre opportunities. As they start to plan their way out of this, uh, do they rebuild the same model that they had before or do they take advantage of some of the third-party service providers uh, who can help uh, deal with the, the higher volumes of uh, customer service contact centre work that are going to be requir required? Not debt collection, but, but building bridges in, in helping people out of the, the pressures that they find themselves in. Uh, there is a there's an interesting mixture that we're seeing in terms of client instructions. I mean, uh, I, I did say that there'd been a lot of suspension of work, that, uh, uh, that current files had been put on hold, that new work had been suspended. But there is a percentage of clients who are continuing to refer accounts as they did before, who are authorising legal action as they did before. Um, so because even with high unemployment, there is still 90% um, yeah, of uh, people who are in employment uh, for whom nothing has changed. Um, so there is uh, um, a bit of a mixture. I think the, the knee-jerk reaction is to, to do nothing and see what's really going on 
But as we start to feel the need to get back to business, the pressures are going to create opportunities for us yep. uh, as service providers to the, to the broad business community. Yeah. Great segue too, Paul. Thank you. Before we wrap up, I just want to look at operational capabilities and effectiveness. Um, and, and perhaps if you could just provide, uh, as business owners, your views around what experiences are you facing around, um, are, are you making calls and sending letters? Um, what are customers saying if you are talking with them? And are they paying? I mean, you've, a lot we talked about very briefly, and, and I know Alan provided great detail around this. Our economy isn't made up of 100% of people that are affected by this economically or financially. So, um, Paul, how are you, a little bit further on what you just touched on then, I guess, how are you operating? So, as I said, some clients are continuing to operate as if nothing has changed, uh, but they're in the minority. Uh, for others, we've taken the initiative of redesigning our contact uh, communications. The language has changed. The form of our demand letters has changed. Um, it's been uh, worked on in conjunction with our clients so that we're, we're encouraging people to maintain communication, not hide because they're in financial difficulty. And, and I know that's what we would say the debt collection industry has done forever in its approaches, that we just want people to talk to us because we're there to provide a bridge between the, the two parties. But now more than ever, that's important that they understand we're not going to be, be uh, trying to collect money when there's someone in the household suffering from COVID. We're, we're not going to be forcing them onto the street because they haven't paid their rent. But we do want to make sure that this doesn't have a long and permanent, permanently damaging impact on them. And, and so our communications have changed. Um, our strategies have, have, have changed slightly. And I, and I divert slightly that one of the other impacts of what's going on now, both for debt buyers, for debt collectors, uh, for collection strategists, is that the scorecards that have become a, a, an important part of so many businesses' operations need to be thrown out the window and rebuilt. You can't rely on the credit information that you, you relied on in February. Yeah. The, the, the uh, environment has changed so dramatically that I, if, if we were looking to acquire a portfolio of debt, you can't apply the old scorecard or collection predict, predictive models to that anymore. Uh, it's, it's the whole games, you know, the 52 cards have been thrown up in the air and you've got to rebuild your hand. Mm. A fantastic point, Paul. Um, Roger, to you, mate. What's um, what's your experiences operationally, and and you know to, for, to extend on Paul's points. Sure, uh, great points, Paul. By the way, I, uh, I I I he vocalized and verbalized everything that I would say. Uh, I would point out one thing: um, professional debt collectors are used to working with consumers in crisis. That's what they do all day, every day and working in a lot of healthcare and utility business, this time is not really different for us with the exception of the extreme concentration of people that are in crisis now. So our collectors are actually thriving in helping people. The, the other thing that's critically uh, important to note is the fact that we represent a ton of small businesses. 
and small businesses very much depend on the returns that we collect to stay viable and stay in business. So we, we've got a good equilibrium to maintain there. We're making phone calls. We've always taken a positive, compassionate uh, approach where we want to build a rapport with the consumer. Uh, we, we want to help them find solutions, be solution-oriented, and, and just drive that word help, help, help home. So they're still doing a whole lot of that. We're still sending letters. We're still uh, sending emails, um, uh, SMS messages, etc. The interesting thing that Paul uh, hit a chord with me on is how, uh, how obsolete a lot of the scoring matrices are going to be. And uh, with that in mind, we've started putting together some of our own internal scoring matrices with some uh, pretty, pretty unique uh, identifiers that I think could yield some fruitful results uh, for creditors down the road. Um, I, I'm in a group of guys uh, in a benchmark group that uh, they're a whole lot smarter than me. And when we share some elements and put our heads together, we can come up with some pretty brilliant things. Uh, so I, I think that uh, Paul hit the nail on the head when uh, he said that uh, who knows what the future is, is going to bring, but we're all at square one again. And Adam, I, I think there's a whole other series for you to focus on in, in that. Thanks, Roger. And Don, as a lawyer and a litigator and a legal counsel, I'd like to use this opportunity, though, if you could give us a little bit of background. I've seen some of the work you've been um, putting together on this uh, interactive map uh, that Maurice Wutcher has published around uh, you know, debt collection uh, impacts state by state. And I'd welcome you to share a little bit of information around that now, because that's something that also our guests around the world, I haven't seen something quite like this from an industry perspective um, anywhere else around the world. And it may be something that our that those outside of the US may, may be able to benefit from. Uh, one of the things that, that we, we have seen and, and that you heard me talk about was trying to make an assessment of uh, how different uh, persons in different places are being affected. And we as we, we do defense litigation. That's pretty much what my firm does is defense litigation. And we handle regulatory affairs. And so we give counsel and advice compliance assistance to persons in the financial services industry, whether they be debt buyers, debt collectors, attorneys, banks, non-banks, mortgage lenders, the whole, the whole span, even commercial. We do a lot with small and medium enterprise lenders. So the problem has been, you know, how, how do you decide what you're supposed to be doing place to place when uh, there's so much going on and there's so many differing things? We found it to be very helpful. Um, a lot of my time has been spent since mid-March uh, on uh, this type of work. As far as litigation, uh, the, the industry continues to be sued. Uh, by private litigants, mostly. We still see enforcement actions ongoing. Uh, those have not stopped, uh, although uh, the deadlines uh, on uh, litigation against financial services may be stayed uh, uh, due to court emergencies being declared in most federal courts in the U.S., not all, but most. So uh, uh, as far as a, a practicing litigation attorney, it's business as usual plus like 100% plus, yeah. uh, because there's far more compliance, far more crazy regulations, bizarre and strange ones that uh, are almost nonsensical that we have to sort through and interpret and digest uh, for our clients. So yeah. that's, that's, that's the fun I've been having. 
in the world where there is just information overload and so many sources of information, um, whether it be coronavirus, infection rates, mortality rates, whatnot, I, as I said, I, I haven't seen something like that um, for, for our industry. So hopefully uh, others can learn or, or, or make steps to be able yeah. to do something like that themselves. Uh, as I said before, any participant in this industry who makes a, a, a grievous error affects all of us. Um, so we want to get the information out there and share it. And, and Roger knows uh, we've all been on uh, many phone calls uh, with the ACA and the National um, Creditors Bar Association, um, uh, talking to each other and avoiding that very problem. So information sharing um, is, is, is quite important uh, through all of the different uh, associations in your jurisdiction uh, to avoid um, a, a terrible misstep. And that was clearly unintended, uh, but for the lack of information. Well, Don and Paul, Roger, um, thank you so much. In parting ways, guys, and as leaders of our industry that I have learned so much from each of you uh, individually, can you share one nugget of wisdom that you think might help businesses prepare for uh, and respond to these crazy times we find ourselves in? Uh, information. Uh, gather if you're a financial services company. Gather as much information again about the locale. Um, as a small business, uh, gather your resources together. Um, so uh, I've been operating my own firm now. Um, I think this is 25 years. <laughs> 25 years. I have been through uh, several crises, hurricanes, uh, terrorist attacks. Um, uh, and the like, uh, not the pandemic, but what I do know is this, um, uh, be careful with your resources, talk to your creditors, talk to your clients, uh, get their input, um, be accommodating as much as you would want to someone to accommodate you, and you can withstand um, this, this, uh, this storm. Excellent. Well, one, two, three, I think I counted five or six uh, nuggets of wisdom. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for sharing there, Don. Uh, Roger, over to you, mate. Thank you, Adam. Uh, to the small business owners, I would say be good to your patrons in the bad times so they'll be good to you in the best times. To agencies, I would say uh, be good to your creditors and be a resource to them in the worst of times so when in the strangest of times they're using you and not someone else. Thank you, uh, Roger. And, and Paul? On the same theme, um, I would say, get ready. As we come out of this, get ready to change your business and get ready to take advantage of the, the new opportunities that, that are going to present themselves. So that was episode one of the State of Debt Collection four-part series. I need to thank my guests uh, and my good friends uh, for their incredible insights today. And we'll be sure to have them back uh, for future episodes and, and particularly as we look at the revival phase of COVID-19, whenever that may be. Before I go, I just wanna thank you for joining us. Help us set the agenda moving forward. Be sure to like, comment, and share this with anyone you think might be interested. For now, all the best and see you next time.